So, uh, a little bit of housekeeping before we jump into things. This past week, Tippecanoe County moved into the red category of the state of Indiana's COVID-19 metrics for the first time. That is, we saw increases in cases per 100,000 and in the seven-day positivity rate percentage. So the leadership of ECC have always maintained that we would uh, begin conversation regarding whether we needed to make any change in our in-worship, uh, in-person worship practices should this happen. So we met a couple times this week, we prayed, we discussed our options, we listened to one another, and we made a decision. And in the end, we have decided that for the time being, we will continue to hold in-person worship here at ECC. And of course, we will continue to monitor the situation and be open to adjusting those practices should things change. We do encourage each of you to make decisions uh, on your own about whether or not the worship in the sanctuary in person is, is the best for you. We're trusting you to self-regulate in those things. This is a great opportunity uh, to, for us to remind you of some of the good practices uh, that we have been trying to encourage you to practice going forward. So first, if, you, are, if you, uh, you or someone you live with are not feeling well or are quarantined or you've had a COVID test and you're waiting for results, please do not join us in person. Worship with us online instead. Second, when you are here with us, we ask that you wear masks out of love for our neighbors, your neighbors. Third, while you are here with us, please practice all of the, the social distancing we've been amply made aware of over the last 10 or 11 months. And then beyond Sunday worship, ministry groups are permitted to use the campus as long as they keep their numbers within the state's recommended 25-person limit and follow the previously stated uh, policies and gatherings uh, policies on gatherings at ECC. Then finally, and this is a big one, really big help to us on Sunday mornings, especially for those who are greeting you and helping you to find your seat, is if you pre-register before you get here. Pre-register the week before. Go to our website, ecclife.net. There, all week long, at the top of the page in a black banner, is a link for you to click on and to register for next weekend service. And doing so uh, makes accommodating everyone on Sunday mornings a whole lot easier and a more efficient task. So, Thanks for listening, and let's dive into our passage for this week. So we are in week two of our current series on the ECC touchstone of transformation via the Sermon on the Mount. We haven't, we haven't really dived into the Sermon on the Mount yet, and we're still not ready. We still need to build uh, some foundation. Last week, we wanted to start building that foundation for how we read, how we interpret, how we understand the Sermon on the Mount, what we're to do with it, how we're to apply it to our lives. <clears throat> we looked at the last few verses in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, and there Jesus tells a parable. In that parable, he says, those of us who hear his teaching in the ser- on the Sermon on the Mount and do what he says, we are like those people who build their houses upon a rock. Those who hear Jesus' teaching and do not put his teachings into practice, do not obey him, are like those who build their houses upon the sand. So when the storms of life come, or the storms of judgment come, <clears throat> the house and the rock will stand, the house and the sand will collapse. So rather than pushing the sermon off <clears throat> into the future as an ideal way of life we will one day be able to live, or pushing it aside and putting it on a shelf as merely a... a, a uh, a statement to show us how hard it is to live the perfect life and therefore we have to have God's forgiveness and grace, we discovered that in fact Jesus, according to that parable, intends for us to take his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, seriously. We are meant to seek to obey it even now, even if we will do it imperfectly. This week we want to build 
<coughs> excuse me, want to build a little more of our foundation in terms of how we read and apply the Sermon on the Mount to our lives. And next week we will dive in uh, to the sermon proper, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. So first of all, again, our foundation is that we are to take Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, through Matthew chapter 7, verse 27, seriously. It is meant to obey, be obeyed. It is meant to be lived by us even now. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever. The second part of our foundation, then, has to do with the nature of the kingdom of God. And I can tell you, uh, it's going to help us to understand again how we filter these, how we understand the Sermon on the Mount. And I can tell you that years ago, when I first encountered this understanding of the reality of the kingdom of God, it was revolutionary to me. And it continues to be revolutionary to me, even today. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. Three people come up to Jesus. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. There is an urgency to Jesus' words here to each of these would-be followers. Jesus invites them into his kingdom, but he lets them know that it's going to cost them something if they do. Now again, this is not Jesus saying that we have to earn our forgiveness or our salvation with God. That's a free gift. Scripture is clear about that. You can refuse that gift, but it's always there for the taking. No, this is Jesus saying that once you have received the blessing of God's grace and forgiveness and mercy, living as Jesus teaches us to live, as rewarding as that life can be, is also challenging. It is what Jesus refers to elsewhere as considering the cost or counting the cost of following him. The Sermon on the Mount is both an invitation and a challenge. So in one place, Jesus says, not in the sermon, but another part of the gospel, Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to give it to the full or abundant life. In another place, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your, you need to deny, deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me daily. <clears throat> Which is it? Is it abundant life, Jesus, or is it self-sacrifice? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Both. These things are together. We may even be able to call them the same thing. In some mysterious kingdom reality that I can't fully grasp, these two things are one and the same. Life in the kingdom of God and life lived according to the teaching of Jesus is challenging, but anything good and anything worthy of our time, friends, we all know is going to take self-sacrifice. It's going to take selflessness. It's going to take a commitment to hard work. Everything from pursuing a healthy marriage to raising decent kids <clears throat> to learning to work with difficult co-workers to working with integrity in the workplace to loving our neighbors to loving our enemies to following Jesus wherever he leads us in the world with the power of the Spirit and step with the Spirit. It all takes hard work, commitment, and follow-through. And at the same time, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom, here, now, 
and forever. Both are true. It requires something of us, but it offers us abundant life in the here and now as well. Jesus spends most of his teaching in the Gospels talking about the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, or what he calls it in John's Gospel, eternal or abundant life. He spent the 40 years between his resurrection and his ascension talking about one thing, teaching about one thing, the kingdom of God. Once again, in my experience, many of us have heard that eternal life is all about what we have in heaven after we die, but eternal life begins now, friends. It begins when you and I begin to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and it goes on and on throughout eternity. In my experience, many of us who have grown up in the faith do not have a healthy or proper understanding of the nature of the kingdom of God. Many of us, again, in my experience, many of us think of God's kingdom as something that is off in the future somewhere, something that is not to be experienced until we die and after we enter into heaven. But the truth is, in the Gospels, Jesus says very little about entering into heaven. He talks mostly about life in the kingdom of God. Whereas he speaks of it in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, or more literally, the kingdom of the heavens, plural, which should tell us something about how we might nuance this and what Jesus and Matthew might be trying to say to us. The word translated as heaven or heavens simply means the atmosphere around us, the skies, the air you breathe. It's up there. It's right here. It's all around us. It's not something way off beyond the sky somewhere. It's right here. This is close. This is close to us as the air we breathe, closer than our skin. And if we want to enter into and experience the kingdom of God kind of life, we must change our minds about some things. We must change our minds, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. In the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Jesus proclaims some very good news, some blessings that we're going to talk about next week. And a good chunk of what he says there in those first 12 verses, a good chunk of it is spoken of in the future tense. These things will happen. You will receive this. But in two places, at the beginning in verse 3 and again in verse 10, Jesus speaks in the present tense. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He did the same thing in verse 10 with those who were being persecuted for their faith. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or consider Jesus' first act of preaching. Long before the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, he proclaims the good news of God, saying, The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Something is announced, something comes into being when Jesus says these kinds of things. The time has come, the kingdom has come near. Put another way, the kingdom of God is present and the kingdom of God is present tense. The kingdom of God is present and the kingdom of God is present tense. In Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, we read, Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Clearly, the Pharisees do not understand God's kingdom as something we have to wait until we get into heaven to experience. 
To them, Jesus is not talking about heaven. To the people of Israel of that day, the kingdom they were waiting for was very literal. It was a very down-to-earth kingdom. It was physical. It was political. It was very much in the future. To the Pharisees, the kingdom of God was all about land, which is going to be important in next week's passage. It was all about land. It was all about a people to be ruled, the people of Israel, and it was about a king. It was about, to the Pharisees, it was about being set free from the Roman oppression for good. So they asked Jesus, more out of a desire, I think, to get him into trouble than to know the truth. They asked him, when will the kingdom of God come? When will the Romans be kicked out for good and this will be our land? And we can see how that might get him into trouble, depending on how he answered it. Jesus tells them that the kingdom of God is already here. It is in their midst, and they don't even see it. Some older translations will say, and this was actually in the one that Kate read. It was an older version of the NIV. It says that the kingdom of God is within you. Like, it lives inside of us. But to quote Pete Hogwallet from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That don't make no sense. Why? Because Jesus is saying these things to the Pharisees. And the kingdom of God certainly does not live within them. They oppose Jesus at every turn. No, Jesus clearly means that the kingdom of God is right in front of them, not off in the future somewhere, not up in the cloud somewhere, not within them. It's in their midst. It's right there. It's among them. It's right in front of them. The kingdom was present in their midst, and the kingdom is present in our midst too. It's as close as the air around us. It's like when we say, oh, I'd love to go to outer space. You're in it already. You're sitting on a ball of rock hurtling around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour in a solar system that swirls around the center of the Milky Way galaxy at 490,000 miles an hour. Hold on. We're in outer space already. It is the air we breathe. It is the atmosphere in which we find ourselves. We just don't always realize it. The same way, the kingdom of God is in our midst. It is among us. It is as near as the air around us. We just have to be intentional about stepping into it and living into it and living out of it and breathing it in and out, as it were, which is what Jesus' message in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all about. I said last week that during this 12-week series on the Sermon on the Mount, there would be one overarching good news statement And that occasionally, from week to week, there may be a smaller one that we attach to it, depending on the passage. Of course, that happened the very next week. But here it is, the overall, I've already said it a couple times, the overall good news for this series. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever. But I do think we need another one for this morning. Another one that is shorter that feeds into the larger one, a statement that reminds us of the good news that the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God has arrived. The word translated in some older translations as at hand or in the NIV as has come near. That word means, the Greek word means to bring near or to join one thing to another. To join one thing to another. In announcing the presence of God's kingdom, God's reign, Jesus is saying that he has come 
to join our earthly experience to God's kingdom reign. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is good news. The kingdom of God has arrived. It's, it's here. It's available. It is both present and present tense. So before we talk about how we're going to respond to this good news, I want to share a quote with you. It is a quote that I have shared with you before. It is a quote I will share with you again. It's just one of those quotes that every time I come back to it, I find it incredibly meaningful and powerful. Pastor and author Frederick Buechner writes this. If we only had eyes to see and ears to hear and wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God in the sense of holiness, goodness, beauty, is as close as breathing and is crying out to be born within ourselves and within the world. I want to say that again. The kingdom of God in the sense of holiness, goodness, beauty, is as close, close as breathing and is crying out to be born within ourselves and within the world. We would know that the kingdom of God is what we all of us hunger for above all other things, even when we don't know its name or realize that it's what we're starving to death for. The kingdom of God, whoever you are. If you have not already entered into the kingdom of God by trusting in the goodness of Jesus and his death and resurrection from the dead, you may not know it, <clears throat> but that thing you hunger for, that thing you long for, that ache in your heart is the kingdom of God. And you are longing for it, you are starving to death for it. The same may be true for any of us who call ourselves Christians to the extent that we are not experiencing as much of the kingdom of God life as we could, we too are starving to death for it. And the good news is the kingdom of God has arrived. And it's available to us all. If it is true that in Christ the kingdom of God has indeed arrived, if it is true that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live purposely and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever, how shall we respond? According to Jesus himself, we repent and believe the good news. We repent and believe the good news. That word, repent, in the Greek means simply to change your mind. To change your mind. To see things differently. To choose to engage in life from a different point of view. To choose to change your mind about the world, the universe, and your place in it. How you live your life. This is true for those of us who have not yet come to know Christ, and it is true every single day for those of us who may have walked with Christ for decades. We are all on a journey toward transformation, toward Christiformity, having Christ formed in us. And that journey, that transformation is not going to happen like that. It's, it's going to be slow, it's going to inc be incremental, it's going to take a long time. But it is still God's intention that we be on that journey towards transformation. And if that is what God intends, then we, and we are not where we need to be or where we can be in this journey. There is almost always something in our lives from which we need to repent, about which we need to change our minds and change our ways. For not only does Jesus say that we are to change our minds, he says that we are to believe the good news. We're to believe in the good news. That word translated as believe, according to some really outstanding scholarly work by Matthew Bates, can also be translated as allegiance. That is, to believe 
is to pledge our allegiance, our loyalty to Christ and his kingdom. And that means, friends, we can't go on living the way we always have. We have to change. At the very least, that understanding of that word, believe, ought to be included as an important nuance in the conversation. If we truly believe something, after all, we will give our lives to it. If you say you believe, believe in something, but you're not doing something inconsistent with what you say you believe, I would say, no, you don't. If we believe something, we will give our lives to it. We will live differently than those whose allegiance is to something less than the good news about the kingdom of God. Where do you need to change your mind about life and living? Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to pledge your allegiance anew to the here and now kingdom of God? Along those lines, I had, we had an interesting statement come up in our king, kingdom conversations on Zoom last week after worship. We're holding space every Sunday afternoon during this series um, for Kingdom Conversations, a place where you can log on to Zoom with us from noon to 12.30 or 12.45 tops. and We can talk about the sermon, possibly talk about the chapter in The Good and Beautiful Life if people are reading that. You can uh, log into that after you leave here. Just go to our, our website, ecclife.net. And at the top, even now, there already is a banner that tells you you can click and log into that Zoom conversation at noon. During that kingdom conversation last Sunday afternoon, someone said, on the topic of the Sermon on the Mount, and the transformation that is available to us in the kingdom of God, that either this has nothing to say about what happened in the Capitol on January 6th, or it has everything to say about what happened in the Capitol on January 6th. Either it has nothing to say, or it has everything to say. It was a good observation. I'm a slow processor, and, and I have learned, sometimes the hard way, I have learned that it's not always a good idea for me to speak into something, an event or whatever that happens too quickly. Certainly not if to do so isn't immediately, it doesn't immediately fit with the passage. I don't want to force something in that doesn't belong there. So last week, in my study, in my writing of the sermon, I didn't see the connection between what happened on the Capitol and what happens in the Sermon on the Mount. Thanks to the question that was asked on Zoom last week, I do now. Like I said, I'm a slow processor. One of the details that was not immediately obvious to me in the days following January the 6th was how present and how prevalent Christian symbols, the Christian flag, and Christian rhetoric were among those who attacked the Capitol alongside Nazi swastikas, Confederate flags, and other symbols of white supremacy. Now, I don't claim to know the hearts of everyone there. I don't claim to fully understand everything that was going on. But I know enough now to say simply this. To the extent that images and symbols and Christian rhetoric, to the extent that Christian rhetoric, Christian symbols, Christian images were used as the authority by which violence was inflicted on other human beings who were made in God's image, the people who did these things were not living their lives in obedience to the Sermon on the Mount or in other teachings by Jesus. I want to say that again. To the extent, to the extent 
that Christian images, symbols, and rhetoric were being used as the authority by which violence was inflicted upon other human beings made in God's image. The people who did these things were not obeying Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and beyond. We don't get to slap a Christian symbol or hoist a Christian flag or wrap it all in a Bible verse and then trample people down. We don't get to do that. That's not consistent with the teaching of Jesus. And because it's possible that someone might say to me, yes, but you didn't say these kinds of things when the riots were happening after the protests over racial righteousness last summer, let me clarify. I don't condone violent protests of any kind. I don't think Jesus does either. Whether that's around racial righteousness, abortion clinics, or what we saw in the Capitol last week. Even though these things do tell us something about society, we need to know. What I'm talking about here specifically, what I'm talking about here, is the use of Christian symbols and rhetoric to justify violence. That is what is diametrically opposed to the teaching of Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not saying the people who did these things aren't saved. I'm not saying their sins aren't forgiven. I'm saying they have either been deceived about the true nature of the kingdom of God, or they have chosen to intentionally ignore the teaching from Jesus about the kingdom of God, and they need to repent. They need to change their minds. This is what comes from a faulty understanding of the kingdom of God, as if it's something far and away and unattainable and up there. It has no impact on life in the here and now. And that is a faulty understanding. You see, the Sermon on the Mount has everything to say about what we do with our lives. The Sermon on the Mount has everything to say about what happened in the Capitol. The Sermon on the Mount has everything to say about how we treat our enemies. Don't believe me? Read it. Sit down, as I said last week, in one sitting and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. For fun, flip over to Luke 6. There's a version of it there, too. Jesus' announcement of the kingdom is to let us know that there's a better way of life. There's a more good, beautiful, and true way of life that is available to us all, and that is life in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom has arrived. That kingdom is both present and present tense. True. Life in that kingdom is also challenging. Sometimes it asks an awful lot of us, but it always gives back infinitely more than it asks. The kingdom is here this morning. It is available to us all. Wherever you are, wherever any of us are in our journey of our lives, the invitation stands. Repent. Change your mind and believe the good news. Pledge your allegiance, your, your very way of life to this good news and enter in. I think we all know that the world in which we live needs to know there's a better way. Needs to know there's a kingdom that is present and that we can enter into and live into that kingdom even now. Would you pray with me as we close?
Father God, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your goodness to us and delivering to us the Sermon on the Mount through your son, Jesus. I ask right now, wherever we might be in this situation, that you would speak to us. God, for those who might be in our, our midst or worshiping with us online who have not yet entered into that kingdom, God, I pray that you would lead them to that place. I pray, Lord God, right now that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would give them the, the knowledge that you love them, that you have a better way for them to live, that you have died and risen again for them. And I pray for all of us, Lord God, who may already know you, may, but may have blind spots where we do not know that we need to change our minds about something. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you in the week ahead to spend some time in prayer around a couple of questions. Maybe even do some journaling. Questions are, where do I need to pledge my allegiance anew to God's kingdom way, and where do I need to change my mind about life and living today? Where do I need to pledge my allegiance anew to God's kingdom way of life, and where do I need to change my mind about life and living today? And so as we begin next week to talk through the challenges and walk through the challenges we find in the Sermon on the Mount, and there are many, I want to encourage you, exhort you, that we could go forward with commitment to hear, to better understand, and to obey the teaching of Jesus. Let us build our houses on the solid rock, and let us do so with the promise that Christ gives us, that we do not do this alone. His life, his death, his resurrection are there to empower us for life in the kingdom of God, here, now, and forever.